You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Everybody, welcome back to the Ducks on the Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. My name is John Gordon. I'll be your host. And I'm your host, Katie Burke. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America. The DU Podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, the official performance dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Purina Pro Plan, always advancing. everybody welcome back we have another episode here for you and we're going to be going i guess you could say north of the border into canada well i i guess i should say the person that we have joining us is from north of the border but he's here in person wonderful time to visit memphis mid-august 117 degree heat index so (laughs) i say that jokingly obviously uh we'd much rather be recording this in canada but it is great to have this guest here with us Uh, i've spent the last last couple of days with him visiting and he's been assisting us with some things related to the breeding population survey results and uh, communication around that. I'm going to let him introduce himself right now. Go right ahead. Thanks, Mike. Um, my name is Matt Dyson. I'm a research scientist at uh, Ducks Unlimited Canada's Institute for Wetland and Waterfowl Research. Yeah. Uh, Oak Hammock Marsh and Manitoba. Stonewall, Manitoba. Stonewall, Manitoba, north of Winnipeg. It's open to the public. Yep, we have a public-facing kind of display, uh, whole exhibits. Uh, There's activities for the kids, uh, lots of trails to go walk on, uh, observe the marsh. Uh, Great time to be there in September. Yeah, this is a pretty neat opportunity to have you. I I guess, let me think about this. You might be the first DU Canada employee to be here with us in person. We've had Scott Stevens. um, We've had... Brian Hepworth. Yep, Brian Hepworth. Maybe Pat Kehoe a number of years ago. I can't remember about that. But anyway, we've had a number of folks that joined us remotely. First opportunity to have someone personally, I mean, here in person. And I say it's a, it's a really cool opportunity because we work with y'all as, as one of our three family, uh, three organizations in our family, DU Canada, DU Inc., and then DU to Mexico. We work together on international conservation planning. Uh, we work together on science. We work together in, in pretty much every way that you can, you can think of. Obviously, they are different organizations and we're structured diff- differently with regard to fundraising and, and so forth. And uh, the programs that we administer are, are done separately within those countries. But DU Inc. sends money to Canada, to DU Canada, to, to do some high-priority conservation work there. And we work together. On, on a whole host of things. The waterfowl season outlook, uh, which is what you're here for uh, right now, just uh, we just did that last night. It's a new 
collaborative effort between our two organizations designed around helping to communicate the results from the Breeding Population Survey report and getting people fired up for the upcoming hunting season. And so this was just an, uh, uh, we're taking advantage of having you here to talk a little about science and conservation in DU, from DU Canada's perspective, there's a little bit of a difference in the way our science staffs are, are structured and where they're kind of located. And we'll talk about that. Uh, and then we're going to hear about just kind of what you're working on. So I guess to start with, you work for DU Canada. You're in the, the Institute for Wetland and Waterfowl Research. We don't have one of those here in the States. There was a time where we tried to get one of those going, um, but we found out that our science staff were... Um, it's better to have them sort of remotely located, well, in our regional offices because that's where that application of science is most direct to conservation. Tell our audience about the Institute. How long have you been with the Institute? And then kind of give our, our folks an idea of what that is. Yeah, sure. Um, so I've been with Ducks Unlimited Canada since uh, September of 2021. Uh, so relatively new, still doing lots of learning uh, about the group and about the organization. But um, the Institute has been around, I believe, since 1990 uh, is when the, the Institute was founded. And effectively, it's since its inception, has been a group of researchers focused on waterfowl and wetland conservation research. A lot of really traditional waterfowl uh, research ha happened out of the Institute, the prairie assessment, uh, the spatial, uh, the SPATS uh, research program, um, some of those led by by some of our, our you know, founding members. Um, and then, you know, we've evolved over time too, to include a, a variety of, of different researchers that are focused on uh, lots of values that wetlands provide us. So in addition to myself uh, serving as a waterfowl scientist, we have scientists focus on uh, everything from ecosystem services and the values that are uh, our restoration and retention of wetlands would uh, provide, um, as well as biodiversity benefits, um, things based on, uh, you know, we work in different regions as well. So across Canada, boreal forest, um, scientists focused on different aspects um, of, of wetland conservation in those those regions. There's a lot to unpack. Uh, my, 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 my familiarity with IWWRs is, is pretty deep. I've I worked on the Prairie Habitat Joint Venture Assessment that you, that you, well, let me correct that a little bit. My wife was a, worked on the assessment. She was employed on the assessment. I worked alongside the assessment when I was conducting my master's research. So I'm very familiar with the, the just phenomenal study and that, that it was, the information it provided us about mallard nesting ecology, breeding ecology. And uh, so, yeah, that my familiarity with IWWR is kind of in that vein. Also, a tremendous amount of wetland ecology research, fisheries ecology research there at the Delta Marsh. We've talked about that with Delta Robleski uh, on some prior episodes. And, and so, it's we don't have that here in the States. We are, like I said, it's more, more of a diffuse science staff and... There are reasons for that. The thing that you kind of pivoted to there and we're talking about um, having added staff in these other areas of, of scientific expertise, you know, biodiversity, uh, carbon sequestration, uh, wetland ecology, I guess, um, yeah, a whole bunch, of, whole bunch of other stuff. That is related to, to the recognition that all of our organizations have in that the threats to waterfowl habitats are really are, – are, are accelerating. They're diverse. They're widespread. Our ability to conserve and restore wetlands at a pace necessary to kind of counteract to some extent those other threats, we just can't do it on waterfowl interest alone, interest in the birds themselves. So we got to find ways to, to, to demonstrate to broader society the benefits of these wetlands and why they need to care about it, why corporations need to care about it, and why 
uh, state and federal governments need to care about it well beyond just waterfowl and bird habitat. And so y'all have y'all are leading the charge among our organizations in kind of that that um, in that regard. You guys have been ahead of us a few years in trying to quantify some of that. We're we're catching up, adding staff. But how I mean, is that you're a waterfowl ecologist by training, right? But how much do you do you work with those with your other science staff on some of those collaborative projects yeah well i think that's that's one of the coolest parts or an attractive part for working for a group uh like iwwr is, is opportunity to to learn from colleagues that are maybe maybe think about systems from a different light um which provides new insights or, or, or new ideas uh, allows us to incorporate you know maybe new methods to, to existing methodologies that we might already use to study wetlands or waterfowl and, and incorporate some additional values so you know we're working on collaborative projects across disciplines right now within our group where we're thinking about okay what are the benefits of these wetlands to or uh, wetlands to waterfowl productivity but in addition to that uh, can we measure uh, other benefits of these wetlands uh, such as uh, carbon sequestration um, or taking gas uh, monitoring uh, gas exchange at those same wetlands and so not only now are we measuring the benefit of those wetlands for waterfowl and for broader biodiversity benefits but we can also start to measure uh, their ability to sequester carbon um, during the year as well. Coming out soon will be uh, our annual international science report. It's produced across all the collaboration across all three organizations. It's it provides a brief description of all the scientific studies that our organizations are involved in for a given fiscal year. Um, there's a lot of different ways we support those projects, and so when you look at the DU Canada section of that report, I mean there's dozens, probably 50, 60, 70 different projects that are identified that y'all are working on. Give us an example, Paul, from your, from all of those that you're aware of, because um, you're a waterfowl research scientist within that larger group of scientists. Dr. Stuart Slattery is what? He's kind of the- National manager. National manager of, of, IWR, of yep. IWWR? Okay. Yep, that's correct. So he's the one that kind of oversees all that, but you, you, you work uh, as a scientist alongside a lot of your colleagues there. Pick a, a project. Tell our audience about one of the projects that you're working on that you find pretty cool and, and exciting right now. Oh, well, I mean, I, I, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll do two of them, but you got to pick one first. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, I, I, I find them all pretty exciting yeah. uh, that I get an opportunity to work on. But I think the project I'm most excited on, we have a project right now that we call Wetlands and Working Landscapes. It's a new new pilot program. We just finished the first field season for um, and really leveraging, uh, you know, some of our traditional work that we've done and trying to understand how uh, pr- productive uh, different wetlands are on the prairies, but also acknowledging that we know, and we've talked about this in some of our conversations, Mike, when our, our our waterfowl outlook surveys of those wetlands may be different uh, from 20 years ago and there's different land use change that's driving some of that change and so really what we're trying to understand right now is how uh Land use, land use change, agricultural land use might be influencing uh, productivity of some of these wetlands of varying hydro periods um, to understand how um, we might be able to influence agricultural practices or develop um, conservation programs that might benefit ducks or have a, have a greater benefit to ducks. And so we're using, uh, um, we are out uh, doing uh, pair and brood surveys to monitor productivity. Uh, we are also working on monitoring uh, invertebrates, so invertebrate food resources in those wetlands that we know drive use of those wetlands wetlands and productivity on those wetlands uh, using some pilot techniques to uh, develop some genomic approaches. So looking at the use of... Genomic, you got you to define that. Yes. I, I think I know what you mean. 
but yeah, so we're using uh, genetic approaches, so DNA. So we're we're, we're sampling traditionally, uh, and those are being identified by some of our partners with the Alberta Biodiversity Monitoring Institute. So you're collecting water samples, doing some like it's called eDNA or something like that. Is that right? Yeah. So when we talk about eDNA, we're usually talking about something like a water sample or an air sample. Where we're okay. passively sampling, um, but then in addition to that eDNA, we're also working with what we call bulk tissue samples, and oh. so we actually take the traditional DNet sweeps uh, that, that a lot of people have done for inverts or be familiar with. Yep. Those get identified uh, taxonomically, traditionally identified morphologically. Um, and then we, what we do is we put those up into a blender. We make a bug milkshake and that bug milkshake gets through it. Uh, sent through a high throughput DNA sequencing uh, to, to give us some idea of what's what's there as well. For from And usually we can get right down to uh, species level, whereas traditional taxonomy sometimes can only get down to family level. Now, is it true that to become, to be initiated as a Ducks Unlimited Canada scientist, you have to take a sip of the of the bug milkshake? <laughs> well, no, that's, well, that's maybe, not true. Maybe, Scott Stevens told me that. He was trying to recruit me to become a, a DU, you know, DU Canada scientist, and he told me that's what I would have to maybe do. Maybe we can make that a thing. <laughs> Scott actually didn't tell me tell me that, but it sounds like something he would do. But yeah, bug milkshake, that's awesome. Yeah. High in protein, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, do you get out and do a fair bit of that field work? Yeah, so we got a, I got an opportunity to go out and spend a few weeks in the field this this summer, uh, uh, helping to get that project off the ground. But for the most part, those are uh, those are project programs led by our field technicians or our researchers and our biologists. They get to spend a little bit more time in the field uh, than I do in the summertime. But uh, no, it, it, it's great to get an opportunity to get out a little bit and uh, and do that project and, and see those landscapes as well. So I, I you know where I studied for most of my career, I, I worked in uh, southern Ontario on the North Shore of Lake Erie, um, and then I also worked in. In, uh, the, uh, the boreal forest of northern Alberta. And so I haven't spent a lot of time on the prairie landscape uh, mm. to date. And so it's great to get an opportunity to be out uh, seeing the prairies, understanding how they work and, and really learning that landscape. Help us, help our audience kind of make that connection between the data that you collect in the field, the work that we're talking about, brood surveys, productivity surveys, uh, collecting invertebrate samples and eDNA, all those different technologies. Like how do we, and you and I were kind of talking about that this morning on the drive in where the science that we conduct, uh, it fills an important information gap. And then it's like, how does that influence our conservation programs, our planning? And there's not always a direct and immediate link. And that's just the way the world works because there are very few things in this natural world where there's one factor that controls another and that we can address that one factor and then control the thing that we're interested in. Uh, there's a lot of different linkages, right? So uh, using that project as an example, where does this, where do the results of that study kind of factor into our planning or prioritization? Uh, help us with that a little bit. Yeah, that's a good question, Mike. And and when we have opportunities to design some of these studies or think about these studies, those are things we do have in mind in terms of how they're going to influence conservation programs or how they might have the opportunity to influence conservation programs. That doesn't always manifest at the end of a study in terms of being able to actually put that on, you know, onto how we deliver conservation. But in this case, the the hope is to really understand. You know, we talk about sampling across a gradient of agricultural land cover and and really understanding when we have things like buffer strips around a wetland of what benefits those might provide and when we can really quantify the potential benefits that different uh, different uh, conservation programs that we might have whether that's uh, you know keeping a 10 meter buffer strip keeping a 20 meter buffer strip around a wetland you know those are those are results that ultimately hopefully we can we can we can put into programs or use to justify payments to landowners uh, to, to keep land in in forage or in grassland around some of these these wetland habitats to increase productivity and, and not just productivity of, of waterfowl but also in, increase biodiversity in some of those wetlands too so is, is it fair to say that part of this is trying to evaluate 
what we're getting from various conservation programs. Like we can design all sorts of practices and approaches that we think we need to put on the landscape. And and we can I guess we can do this in a number of ways. We can design them, implement them, but then it's really important to go back and measure the effects of those, right? To ensure that we're getting what we anticipated that we did. But then there's also the approach where we can conceive the idea of a project but then implement it kind of experimentally to test it before we roll it out programmatically. Is which one? Where are we on the type of study that you're doing? Is it a bit of a hybrid? Yeah, a little bit of a hybrid, a little bit more of the latter, likely. And in, in, in this case, we won't be uh, stratifying our sample by any mm-hmm. means in terms of our different conservation delivery types that we have. However, when you start to get across that gradient of agriculture from no agriculture to kind of 100% agriculture, within that, yeah, between you know 20 to 80%, you're, you're ultimately going to usually end up and, and arrive at some cases in the prairies where you're going to be working on areas that we have program uh, being delivered just out of the nature of, of that's that's why it's not in 100% agriculture or 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 0%. So what about any any research project in the east are you involved in anything there? I know you're based out of Oak Hammock. Are you involved in anything or is there a project over there that you'd want to kind of give a shout out to? Uh we, so we're getting a, you know a couple couple things in the hopper right now okay. that we're that we're starting to get uh, uh, started up and consider. So nothing uh, nothing uh, substantially developed right now in eastern Canada that uh, that that I'm working you're, on. That you're working on. Uh, there is we, a ton of work that's going on out there, yeah, right? Yeah, so our, our Atlantic t- team and our teams in Quebec and in Ontario uh, doing a lot of work uh, uh, um, and helping to support some projects. Uh, those vary from projects looking at how invasive species can influence uh, wetland ecology and how we can manage invasive species. There's a lot of work in uh, the Ontario team supports related to Phragmites. Um, our Quebec yeah. team works on a lot of questions around GIS um, and understanding, you know, using remote sensing and developing methods uh, in that region. And then in our Atlantic team, Team. Um, our, my colleague Nick McClellan uh, leads a team of biologists and, and scientists there where they're working on all kinds of questions related to fish ecology and how our programs can be can benefit not just waterfowl, but also thinking about how they benefit fish and working with the DFO and a lot of the fish passage structures yeah. because you have a whole different landscape that requires a lot of engineering and, and a lot of engineered structures and evaluation in that way. And so they're working on a lot of those programs out there. Learning about those projects related to fish passage and, and how wetland our wetland restoration, wetland conservation efforts in those in those coastal uh, areas affect fisheries ecology has been one of the more interesting things for me because and, and I, I realize it coastal systems are great are are, are outstanding nursery nursery systems for fish right and they're also incredibly valuable for waterfowl. But gone are the days where we can do kind of single species or single taxonomic group management in those systems. And so if we're going to work effectively to conserve wetland systems, restore wetland systems along those those coastal environments, those coastal landscapes, for waterfowl, in our interest, we have to also be aware of how they support the other fisheries and the other other uh, organisms that depend on it, right? Absolutely, and, and developing those partnerships and understanding and having collaborators that that have a really strong understanding of of, of those important uh, research questions, but then also legal needs sometimes in terms of, of working on projects and helping to make conservation work happen is is really critical. I mean, we talked uh, last night with our colleague Virginia Getz yeah. around the Klamath and, and thinking about uh, fish important fish species that influence management there, and yeah, having those partnerships help help deliver conservation a little bit easier sometimes. Matt, we're going to take a break right now. And then when we come back, I want to talk with you a little bit more about sort of your personal background, uh, some of the things that you're interested in. We've been walking around the halls here at Ducks Unlimited National Headquarters, and you've been you've been 
fascinated by some of the things that you see hanging on the halls and, and some of the display cases. And we're going to talk about that and how it connects with some of your upbringing and your passion for Ducks Unlimited and the things that we do as an organization. So stay with us, folks. Stay tuned to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, after these messages. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Everybody, welcome back. I'm here with Dr. Matt Dyson, waterfowl research scientist with Ducks Unlimited Canada's Institute for Wetlands and Waterfowl Research. We're going to get into your background. Uh, tell us where you grew up, uh, what your upbringing was like, how'd you get into this field? Yeah, well, I think maybe a little bit different than some of the traditional folks that come on, but I think that's becoming more common now too in, in this field. So uh, I grew up in southwestern Ontario, just outside of St. Thomas, Ontario, which is uh, kind of near London, North Shore of Lake Erie. Spent my whole life there uh, and then uh, came time to make a decision to go to college. I uh, did a couple years of business school. Didn't really like that too much. Found myself thinking about fishing a lot. I grew up, uh, op- lots of opportunities to go fishing, camping as a kid, uh, a lot of outdoor stuff. So always enjoyed that and was fortunate to grow up with the opportunity. Family family friends had a cottage up on the Bruce Peninsula. Spent a lot of time up there uh, growing up, learning about fish and fishing and, and uh, kind of was always fascinated with that and decided that uh, one day I learned that that could be a career opportunity to go and study uh, fisheries ecology. And so I went out to the University of Northern British Columbia in Prince George, BC. That's uh, about 4,000 kilometers away from home. Not sure how to do the mile. That was uh, for your undergraduate? For my undergraduate okay. degree, yeah. You've told me that, but I it didn't register. You know, I've had... A- ton of stuff on my mind the past couple of days, but yeah. now BC. Yeah, yeah. I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah. So Northern British Columbia. So I went out there and, and did a four-year uh, degree program there. Was was really interested in, in studying fish ecology and wanted to get into fisheries work. And uh, my first year as an undergrad, I got an opportunity to go back and work with the Canadian Wildlife Service at Big Creek and Long Point National Wildlife Areas in uh, near Port Rowan, Ontario, which is on the North Shore of Lake Erie. So it was near home again. So it was a great opportunity for me. And and, and really there is where I kind of fell in love with, with wetlands um, and, and waterfowl and, and became really interested in those systems. And in and, and Port Rowan's also the headquarters for uh, Bird Studies Canada, now called Birds Canada, uh, who have a, had a subsidiary company or an organization called Long Point Waterfowl. Uh, and I got uh, to be friendly with the folks there at the time, Dr. Scott Petrie and yep. Dr. Mike Schumer. I uh, got talking well, to them. Guys and, well. Yeah, yep. got talking to them and, and there was a master's opportunity that was coming along um, and, and had a conversation with them uh, studying wood ducks there at Long Point. I knew a lot of the landowners and a lot of the marsh managers already from my time with the Canadian Wildlife Service and had the opportunity to pursue my master's degree there studying uh, wood duck uh, female survival and brood ecology um, at Long Point for, for spent three summers down there tracking wood ducks around around the marshes of uh, Big Creek. and Was that a cavity nesting wood ducks? A or? nest box population. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. That's what I meant. Nest, uh, nest box, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So nest box population of wood ducks. So a lot of box monitoring. So we had over 300 nest boxes that we monitored every two weeks uh, for the summers I was there. And then 
uh, put transmitters and, and tracked hens uh, and broods for for 30 to 50 days post hatch. So spent a lot of time in a truck with a, a, a null peak yeah. uh, radio antenna in it. Get a lot of funny looks around Southern Ontario when you drive in a truck that looks like that. Yep, it's uh, a lot of people will assume you're a government uh, a government agency employee trying to do some kind of surveillance or tracking, right? Yeah, well, people thought we were the internet service <laughs> a lot. Mobile so, internet service. Yeah, we got huh? a lot of got a lot of questions. So. Not far fetched. Yeah. Yeah, so I did my, my field work for my master's there and I went to school in uh, London, Ontario at uh, University of Western Ontario or Western, Western University. Um, that's where I got my master's degree and then uh, kind of was, you know, wanted to continue to do research. I uh, was really, you know, really interested and passionate about continuing to do research, continue to advance some of my skills in statistics. And so I knew that that was a PhD was a potential uh, career opportunity for me and something I wanted to at least pursue at that point in my career. And uh was fortunate enough to kind of get in contact with, uh, at the time I actually was in contact with Dr. Jim DeVries uh, at uh, Ducks Unlimited Canada. I was asking him about what potential uh, PhD opportunities might exist. And he shared a couple and I met uh, uh, at the time as well, a uh, uh, new professor at the University of Waterloo had come to come to our university to give a seminar, met with him and, and uh, we had kept in touch and sent me an email and said, hey, we might have an opportunity available for a PhD student collaborating with Ducks Unlimited Canada. And so I said, hey, that sounds... Sounds like something to, uh, right up my alley. And we went and had an interview and, and had some conversations with uh, Ducks Limited Canada folks as well and ended up flying out to Edmonton in 2014, I think, maybe mm. 2015 to meet uh, uh, Stuart Slattery. Good old so Stuart. Doc, Dr. Stuart Slattery and, uh, and talked about uh, PhD opportunities doing some uh, nesting ecology work in the boreal forest. So we went up and, and looked at some of the study sites and yeah, I kind of uh, fell in love with that area. And they offered, that was the first time you'd first, been to a boreal forest. Yeah, first time I'd ever been to the boreal. Wow. So flew into Edmonton and we drove about five hours north up to Slave Lake, uh, Alberta. And we spent four days uh, there. Had some some interesting uh, things go on there. We actually uh, collided with a deer on one of the highways in remote northern yeah. Alberta. Um, welcome and got welcome to, to the bush, right? Yeah, and got to find some some interesting ways home. And but <laughs> I, I was I you know that some I think Stuart was maybe surprised I stuck around and was still interested to do a PhD after that. But uh, no, it was. Uh, uh, it was a great experience being up there. It got me really excited about the potential of the project. And so, yeah, I ended up doing my PhD on, on the nesting ecology of boreal ducks at University of Waterloo. First. I spent four or five years there and yeah, it was a lot of fun. Cool. We're going to come back to some of that. I have a few other questions. I'm going to back up in the conversation here a little bit. You started out, you did a lot of work on fisheries. You grew up doing a lot of fishing. Um did you grow up doing much duck hunting or any any kind of hunting? None, none, okay. and and wasn't really exposed exposed to that at all as as a kid. Um, as said, some some family members that uh, that kind of were interested in it, and I was always kind of curious or, or thought that that was pretty pretty interesting, but uh, not something that I was ever exposed to as a kid. All right, so. A lot of times I have guests on that are fanatical about waterfowl and I ask them what their favorite duck species is or goose species, waterfowl species. You seem to be more of a fish fanatic. Do you have a favorite fish species? Oh, well, I never mean, asked that question of anybody. Before. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a, that's a fair question. I mean, smallmouth bass are you know, uh, probably yeah. one of my favorites in terms of just, you know, going out and fishing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, growing up as a kid, it was all about yellow perch. Ooh, um, that's from, you know, like from really a catching and eating yes, standpoint. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that, that, that's where everything was at then, but smallies as well, uh, yeah. chasing those. But I mean, we know the correct answer to the duck question is wood duck. And if it's yeah. not, it's incorrect, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So I have, I have moved to the, to the wood duck camp as my favorite duck for a number of reasons. I think I've addressed that in a couple of places before. So, uh, so yeah, uh, very good. All right. Uh, smallmouth, yellow perch. Are there any kind of fish that you like 
I don't know, that you have on your list. I have to go do that, um, like noodling, you know, or you, you know what that is, I suspect. No experience other than seeing it on TV um, than a time or two. And I don't think... like something you'd want to do? I don't think I'm super keen on on doing that, Um, you know, but I've I've tried to avoid in most of my life sticking my hand in dark places. Yeah, yeah, well, okay. All right. Hey, so let's move on. Let's get back to the duck, uh, to the duck conversation here. Boreal forest. Uh, tell us a little bit about your research on your PhD. And I guess while you're doing that, give people a, a bit of a mental picture for, for that landscape. I've never, I mean, outside of some of the periphery there in the Southern edge of the boreal forest, maybe you get into the, into the parklands. I don't have a whole lot of, lot of experience in the boreal forest. So paint that mental image for us. Yeah. It's a lot of trees and water, Mike. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Okay. Um, no, it's... That all, it, that's all it's, I need to know. It's, it's I mean, it sounds an, like a bottomland hardwood forest. Yeah, it's an incredible landscape. <laughs> um, you know, lots of, lots of lakes, uh, lots of beaver uh, beaver chain systems, you know, between, uh, you know, down creeks or down water, you know, the water's moving between... Like, it's, very, it's a very connected landscape. Mm-hmm. So the hydrology of the landscape, you know, while you have all these isolated lakes on that landscape, in general, there's a lot of water connectivity between those lakes, whether that be through, you know, what you traditionally might think of as a flowing stream, just sometimes there's peatland habitats or, mm. or, or um, different, you know, fens or bogs that the water's actually transporting through those systems at a much slower pace, of course. But so there's a lot of connectivity in a lot of those those lake systems. And, and in addition to that, you get a lot of beaver um, dams and, and lodges and activity. And, and I mean, I, I find that fascinating in terms of the ecology of the system, in terms of how beavers do drive that. Yeah. And, and certainly an interesting uh, and important uh, piece to habitat maintenance in that region as well. And, and historically as well with trapping and, and changes those populations in terms of how that drives duck habitat um, in the boreal forest. But, you know, realistically, it's an area that has been relatively understudied, um, especially in terms of, you know, boots on the ground research, yeah. like we've done traditionally in the prairies, uh, where we're doing nesting ecology work to, to understand where ducks are nesting, what nest survival looks like, what predators are important for uh, nests. And so really my PhD work was, was trying to put together some of the some of the preliminary information so that we could really understand, you know, what habitat ducks were nesting in, what was eating them, and, uh, and and were there things we could do uh, from a management perspective to potentially help uh, influence uh, increasing nest success if that was even yeah. a, if that was even a concern uh, but we didn't have data previously to monitor any of that so let me ask you a question about the the beavers as sort of ecological engineers there um, do you have any information on on I seem to recall reading this somewhere before but do we have any understanding of the of any trend in beaver populations or the effect of beavers on number of wetlands, size of wetlands? Is there any change related to beaver populations in there? their impact on those wetland systems that we know about? Yeah, well, I wouldn't consider myself an expert uh, with beaver ecology, but I know, and it seems to me that it, the the interest has really increased uh, in the past decade or so um, in terms of understanding beavers on that landscape. Yeah. In particular, there's a few things that we know they do. Well, I think I think we know that their populations seemingly have, in, well, they've at least rebounded significantly from when they were uh, heavily pressured yeah. or were harvested from trapping. And so they're back on the landscape now. They do a few things on that landscape. So not only do they create palm wetlands, and some of the areas where they create their dams, they create deeper wetlands. Those deeper wetlands sometimes provide escape cover for young broods, potentially also uh, really nutrient-rich wetlands sometimes as well, based on where they put some of those those dams, and because oftentimes they can be kind of uh, basically new habitat. Um, and so, you know, really interesting system, but not only that, there's been work that's more recently been done too to show that how beavers can actually benefit some of those landscapes as uh, 
refuges for during wildfire because they they create water more water on the landscape, more resilience on that landscape from burning. And so um, there's some interesting beaver ecology work and the role that that plays as well, I think, in, in wildfires, which of course is, is top of mind uh, for a lot of folks right now. It is. And that's a good segue. I wanted us to talk about that a little bit. And we've discussed it here over the past few days relative to its potential impact on waterfowl breeding populations. It feels like this is a question that I've asked you two or three times. I probably have, but not in this, not in this setting. So what do we know about the likely effects of those wildfires on breeding populations this year? Uh, and then just in general, uh, are they, how are they, they're a natural part of the system. Kind of talk about that, but then are they things that we need to be concerned about either? And we can discuss that sort of from a historical perspective, but then also where are we now and are there things happening that cause us a bit more concern relative to wildfires? Yeah, no, I think so fire ecology is, is another uh, booming field right now in terms of in, in, on the landscape. And, and are you guys ecology. working on any projects related to that now? Uh, nothing, nothing specifically that we that we're working on, but I can anticipate that there might be some yeah. some interest and in, in some needs continuing. And it's an active area of research, though, for for especially you know landscape ecologists and folks working on peatland systems and 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 uh, things like that. But uh, you know that fire is not normal in the in the boreal forest landscape. Fire is needed. Um, it's an important part of that system. Uh, you know, return intervals from fire can be anywhere between fifty to hundred years, and so you don't get a lot of old trees in, yeah. in those systems. They're they are burning quite often. The change that's we've really seen, uh, I think it's safe to say, is that the frequency and the severity of some of those burns are, is, is much different. And so fires are occurring more often, they're burning larger areas, and they're often more severe in terms of the heat intensity. And so as mm-hmm. opposed to maybe just burning through and and not really taking a lot of the ground cover, these are these fires are often burning uh, quite quite a bit um, into, into the ground as well. And so really changing how uh, not only the landscape looks, but also changing how the landscape responds to fire over time. And so traditionally, when we've looked at fire or thought about fire in, in relation to ducks, and we haven't we haven't really done a ton of research yeah. on, on in, in this field, but that the studies that have looked at it have shown us that ducks are relatively resilient uh, to to some of this fire. So, so there's been work that has looked at those uh, uh, how how fire has been occurred on BPOP transects to understand mm-hmm. how populations might respond over time. And relatively, you know, those are those responses are relatively flat. So we see the same same number of ducks year yeah. after year, regardless of if there's fire. And, and even looking at different lag intervals um, uh, that they worked on, and so it seems it seems that there's some resilience there. However, there hasn't been a lot of studies, for example, you know, looking at maybe how fire influences nest ecology or nest survival or how that might influence birds moving around on that landscape. And so I I could suspect that there there is some opportunity or maybe some questions that we need to be be interested in in terms of understanding how those demographic rates that we know are important to population growth might be influenced by wildfires as they continue to become more common on the landscape um, over time here. Because traditionally, you might expect that you know, there's the landscape's large enough where there's enough habitat on that landscape that can buffer those fire effects where birds can just sort of move around because a lot of these studies that we've done have been at the transect scale. And so um, there's opportunities for some of those fine scale responses to maybe get masked. So we were talking earlier um, this morning about some of the productivity in the wetlands that may change following a fire. Talk about that a little bit and, you know, an anecdotal observation that you shared with me uh, earlier this morning. Yeah, yeah. So uh, one one of the things 
things we know about fire ecology or in the boreal landscape in general is, yeah, there's a lot of water there and there's a lot of lakes, but not all those lakes are productive in the sense of, you know, our prairie wetlands that are hyperproductive, lots of invertebrates, lots of food for waterfowl. Some of these some of these wetlands are more oligotrophic in that there's not a lot of nutrients in them. You got to define that. Not, not a lot of nutrients okay. in them, not a lot of food in them. That's probably the best I can do okay. from, pulling from, pulling from my, my memory here on... on nutrient on, poor. Yeah, yeah. nutrient poor wetlands. Yeah. However, when we have things like burns, we can we can have these these really nutrient uh, increases in some of those water bodies as as that kind of burn gets flushed into uh, in, into those water bodies from the rains. When that vegetation and burns, that vegeta- it releases those nutrients that are bound up in the plants and yep. it goes into the water. And, right. and, yep. And then when we have that that really sudden uh, push of regrowth, yeah. that early seral vegetation that returns, uh, a lot of that is dense herbaceous or or graminoid cover. That's great for for nesting ducks in terms of cover that they're going to be interested in in the following year. And so, you know, anecdotally, uh, I, I didn't study in my PhD in terms of, you know, we were really interested in understanding how industrial development influenced ducks. And so we knew that fire and, and things like harvest are really important on this landscape. However, we were really focused on the, the oil and gas development. And so we actually didn't study any of the fire or, or, or harvest landscapes. But anecdotally, when we would go to some of these uh, burned landscapes, uh, we walked in one time, uh, Stuart and I just kind of got out of the truck because we were curious, you know, mm-hmm. we wanted to see what nest searching would be like in these burns. And of course, you know, five steps in, we flush a blue wing teal right out of the, wow. right out of, you know, fresh burn, burned the year before. Um, so, I think, you know, yeah. birds are responding and yeah. able, to, able to take advantage and use these landscapes. And we know how quick they can respond to in, in the prairie landscape in terms yeah. of when the water comes back. And so I think it's a similar, you know, probably some similar things happening where these birds, especially uh, fast-lived birds like teal, are, are ready to take advantage of those landscapes as soon as they're available. Talk about the difficulty of studying waterfowl in the boreal landscape. You kind of stumbled upon this in my mind there whenever you were talking about uh, you just you flushed a blue-winged teal as you, as you were walking into it. But the boreal landscape is not like the prairies where you can hook up a chain between a couple of uh, ATVs and nest drag, you know, 640 acres in a couple hours or something, right? How do you go about searching for nest in that landscape? And just talk about some of those differences in the densities of waterfowl and the challenges it presents to researchers as a reason for why it, as you said, one of the more understudied, highly important systems for waterfowl. Yeah, you're not going to get too far with the chain drag in the boreal forest. <laughs> There's a lot of trees there that's going to stop mm-hmm. you. And, uh, you know, the the landscape, there's, you know, a lot of bog and fen area as well that an ATV is not getting too far yeah. on as well in terms of that. And, and it's heterogeneous. You know, you get you get little little patches. Um, I used, often use the term mosaic when I'm describing the landscape mm-hmm. of, you know, you're walking for 100 meters in, in upland forest and then all of a sudden you're back into a bog. Um, and so the habitat changes really quick as well. Um, but essentially the way that we were finding nests was was really just ground and pound. Uh, we, were, we were walking... Uh, concentric rings essentially around uh, wetland buffers to try to identify nests, uh, stir them up using uh, willow switches. So trying to cover as much ground as we can, uh, walking a lot of kilometers. Probably a better question to ask some of the technicians that work yeah, for me in yeah. terms of, uh, you know, you kind of always have that drive as a as a graduate researcher and, and really want to get those answers. But uh, technicians probably explain some of the grind a, a little bit better for it. So, but I think, you know, there was I think we were fairly effective. You know, we found found over 50 nests a year, which doesn't sound like a lot when you start to think about the prairie sample sizes. But uh, you know, we were covering pretty good pretty good ground there and, and feeling pretty good about some of those sample sizes. But I certainly, you know, f- you know, looking back, I think there's other other things I would do differently in the future yeah. if I redesigned a new study. But that's you know part of science too, as we kind of learn to work in these new landscapes sure. and what's possible and 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 what type of strategy we might use. I would imagine that's a landscape 
that were pretty excited about trying to use new technologies, drone, uh, you know, unmanned aerial, un unoccupied aerial vehicles with thermal sensors, any of that kind of stuff. Or, I mean, that's, I realize there are some inherent challenges there when you've got trees and, and so forth. But, I mean, that has to be a landscape where remote type um, sensing, remote sensing technologies, whatever they may be, um, is would be hugely valuable. Yeah, and we considered using some of that technology. We actually did work with some transmitters, and so we did do some transmitter work as well to help us identify nests. So, um, you know, in addition to knowing that, you know, we're going to do some nest searching, but worried about the potential bias that nest searching might put, are we missing mm -hmm. birds? How do we know we're not missing a lot of birds that nest further in the uplands? Um, and so we put some transmitters on, on mallard hens as well, and, and, and for the most part, those hens that we put transmitters on were nesting effectively in, in the same distances away from, from wetland bodies that we were actually searching, so that gave us a little bit of confidence in, in terms of our, our, our nest searching efforts that we were making. Um, but again, you know, putting transmitters on birds and doing that type of work takes a lot of logistics uh, uh, too. And so sometimes, you know, we found it just as effective to, to be out there searching. And then from the drone perspective, um, it, the main uh, hindrance there from and from conversations that we had with others uh, was the trees we were worried about, especially because uh, some, of those, some of those species are nesting a little bit later by leaf out. And so there's some challenges with some of that thermal imagery uh, as well for for, for locating nests. I, a question I'll ask you is one that, that I get, um, I don't know, every now and then, maybe not as often now as I, as I used to, but people were wondering, like, what is what do you do on a daily basis? And so you take a stab at that. Like, how much of your day is dedicated to being, I mean, a lot of people think that, that oh, you're a waterfowl scientist, you're out in the field all the time. We've talked about this a little bit before, and, and you do get out in the field a bit. But what are the other things that you're involved in from, you know, publications, grant writing, communications, education, um, any of that type stuff? Give people an idea of the type of work that you and your other science staff do. Well, we're very fortunate to get to do what we do on a daily basis. I feel really grateful all the time. I get to come down here and, and do cool things like this, talk to talk to you, talk to the folks that, that are working here, meeting, meeting people that really, you know, have helped make this organization what it is and, and driving conservation. So that's really exciting. But, you know, from uh, just down to everyday task kind of thing, you know, there, every day is a little bit different. It's not super monotonous in terms of like, you know, I don't really do the same thing every day, but some of those things include, you know, checking your emails and making sure you're keeping up <laughs> with the administration, making sure you're keeping up and doing the administrative uh, pieces of your job properly in terms of budgeting and, and all, all that good stuff and checking in with the folks that, that work for me, making sure they're, they're getting everything that they need and uh, know what they're supposed to be up to and, and getting updates from them and, and checking in that, that way. So there's there's some of that that happens. And then there's the science that 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 I help to lead. So the science that I'm driving, the projects that I'm, you know, kind of the lead on. Uh, but then there's lots of projects that I get to be involved with that I help support as well. And so as a collaborator, as as a committee member, and so trying to keep up with those um, and, and organize on those projects as well. And so that's kind of the, the, the real the science side of things. So that, you know, projects I lead and include things like making sure the field data is being collected properly, getting processed properly, getting entered properly, and then ultimately doing some of the analysis on that and, and blocking that into time and, and publishing, uh, working on manuscripts, whether that's analysis, drafts, revisions, uh, comments, peer review. It's not the same thing every day. No. So those things, and then, and then that's, you know, we're not even getting into then the, the, the other 
aspect of our job that that is you know 50% really of, of what I do is also science support within our within our yeah. organization within DU Canada within DU Inc within DU Mexico uh, whether we get questions or, or opportunities to support those groups we, we spend a lot of time doing that too in terms of uh, helping helping our conservation programs teams or our communications teams and and, and understand science or, or consider you know think about what we should be uh, what we should be up to or working on so we can't be one-trick ponies anymore, can we? I don't think so. <laughs> I, maybe you can. Maybe you can. Some people are lucky enough to be able to maybe do that. Maybe if you got a really good trick. It depends. Yeah, but the, the positions that you and I have and so many of our other science staff, it, we, we just can't do that anymore. The the need for us to to share kind of what we know and the importance of what we know to all the different parts of the organization just seems like it's never been more important than it is now. And, and you know, there's, there are things to, to appreciate about that. There are other things that you're like, well, I wasn't trained to do that, but let's uh, see what I can do. You've been with DU Canada for a couple of years now. Do you love it as much as you thought you would? Oh, the job probably more. Yeah, uh, it's a pretty well. Like I said, you know, get to do some pretty fun stuff. Uh, con- there's there's no short shortage of engagement in terms of opportunities to do fun research. And you know, you'd certainly it, as a as an early career guy, you got to find your ways to say no on some things too. And and uh, the capacity becomes an issue pretty quickly. Uh, if you did said yes to everything or did everything, I don't know if I'd sleep. Um, and so so yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's very engaging opportunities that. that people I get to work with every day. It's a lot of fun. Um, it's an inspiring organization to work for in terms of the work that we do. The opportunity to do things like getting together with staff outside of the science, that's probably my favorite, one of my favorite things that, that I've gotten to do within the organization. I mean, that, that and, and meeting people that we work with in terms of delivering conservation on the landscape. And so meeting the landowners, the people that uh, that have projects on their on their land and have really bought in and, and made these commitments, that's inspiring stuff. We're recording this on August 22nd, uh, 2003. Uh, hunting season in Canada is right around the corner. You have plans coming up? September 1st. September 1st. Hopefully Dr. Stevens and I might get out for for some early blue wings and and just, yeah, just spending time out in the marsh this year. It's it's, uh, kind of trying to prioritize that, maybe get out on the Delta Marsh this year to to chase some cans. And uh, yeah, that's... that's, That'll be awesome. If you go with Scott, if if, if he does take you hunting, make sure that he uses the skinny decoys. You know, the skinny decoys that he's got, you know, the little silhouettes, make sure he uses those. I have a sense that those are the ones that are going to be most effective. So okay, make well, sure make sure that whenever you're loading up, just make sure you say, "Hey, Mike wanted to make certain that we've got the skinny decoys." Okay, got it. Well, we'll also be hunting over his own custom uh, hand carved decoys. Oh, I know, I yeah. know, but uh, I'm a fan. Of, I'm a fan of the skinny decoys. Okay, that's right. <laughs> Tell us what you're most excited about with DU Canada, kind of going forward. Any any new things? Um, uh, the the it's an it's an interesting time. It's an exciting time to be in either all of our organizations within Ducks Unlimited. We're growing. We are expanding our reach. What are the things on y'all's radar? What are the things that you personally are most excited about uh, that you want to leave us with? Yeah, well, that's a tough one. Hopefully, I don't leave anything out. But I don't have to cover it all. I'm just asking for a couple of things. You know, one thing is just like. Yeah, well, I think you know one of the things there's there's you know in addition. So I've started. I'm only two years in, but there's a whole whole bunch of us, a large group of us that are relatively new within the company in the last few years, and so that's kind of an exciting time in terms of you know developing new collaborations and partnerships with colleagues and thinking about the future of what that might hold in terms of the science that we do and the the students that we engage with and the folks that we get to engage with on that research and kind of the the scope at which we are are working on some of the questions now within the group in terms of not just thinking about the benefits of these wetlands from just 
just a water power perspective, which still remains our core and, and what, we've, what we're focusing on, but also all those other benefits and the doors that that opens and the collaboration opportunities and the funding opportunities that that kind of opens as well. So it's an exciting time to kind of be part of the, part of the science team at Ducks Unlimited Canada and, and thinking about what we can do and, and how impactful some of that science can be in terms of uh, delivery of conservation on the landscape. Matt, thank you for joining us uh, on the episode here. Thank you for spending a couple of days with us here in Memphis. I'm glad you got to enjoy the the dog days of summer. I mean, prime time, probably one of the hottest weeks. You also got to experience the the, the clogged sewer drain. That happens, you know, it's going to happen sometimes, right? Yeah. We got to experience the, uh, the uh, we had to shut off the HVAC system last night for our waterfowl season outlook thing. You got a taste of it all. Uh, barbecue, you got some of that. A true Memphis in August experience. Appreciate you being here. It's great to have you on the Ducks Unlimited team. I know this won't be the last time that we connect, uh, but thanks for everything you all are doing up there. Thanks for having me. It's been great, Mike. A special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Dr. Matt Dyson, waterfowl research scientist with Ducks Unlimited Canada's Institute for Wetlands and Waterfowl Research up in Stonewall, Manitoba. We appreciate all that he's doing to help help conserve wetlands and sustain waterfowl populations into the future. We thank our producer, Chris Isaac, who does an absolutely wonderful job with everything that he's involved in here at Ducks Unlimited. Uh, We thank you, the listener, for joining us today and for your support of wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Join us next time. Thank you for listening to the DU Podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, the official performance dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Purina Pro Plan, always advancing. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit ducks.org slash DU Podcast. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.